Hello, everyone, and welcome to HR Works, the podcast for HR professionals. We really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy day to join us. I'm the host of HR Works, Jim Davis, and editor of the HR Daily Advisor. This podcast aims to put valuable tools and knowledge into the hands and ears of you, the HR professional. Those tools will arm you with the best methods and strategies for attracting, motivating, and retaining top talent. Aside from being strategists, brilliant legal minds, and handling the day-to-day operations of an organization, HR professionals often find they have to be something else, an investigator. Workplace investigations are very serious, usually resulting from unfortunate or unpleasant events. Furthermore, the entire process can easily end up under the scrutiny of a number of legal professionals, including employment lawyers and judges. It is very important that HR professionals get investigations right. Today's guest specializes in workplace investigations and is here to discuss some of the most common workplace investigation mistakes. I am pleased to have Allison West, Esquire, SPHR, SHRM SCP, AWICH, and founder of Employment Practices Specialists. Allison started her company to fulfill her personal mission of helping companies build and maintain safe, respectful, and productive workplaces. Allison focuses her practice on conducting workplace investigations, delivering one-on-one sensitivity training for executives, managers, and employees concerning sexual harassment, discrimination, and diversity awareness issues, coaching managers and employees with disciplinary and or behavior problems, providing expert witness and litigation assistance, and offers clients a 24-7 employee complaint line. Allison, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. We're very excited to have you. Thanks. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so why don't we jump right in? What would you think is top on your list of mistakes that that people make when it comes to workplace investigations? Well, there are so many things that would fill that number one slot. But one of the things I like to highlight is always that sometimes uh, HR or their outside investigator just simply takes too long to get the investigation rolling. Now, under the law, we have EEO laws, as everybody who's listening knows, and those uh, EEO laws under EEOC guidance and typically case law as well say, look, you have to do a prompt and thorough investigation when you are put on notice. And I want to really highlight, I guess, a key, uh, one of the mistakes that goes along with waiting too long in the delay is not paying attention to what notice is. Notice is the most important word that I ever teach any group. And that's because you have to pay attention to what puts you on notice. So sometimes, you know, they think because the law says you have to do a prompt and thorough investigation, they jump right in or they just without being prepared. And so they will delay, I'm not ready, or I haven't, it hasn't been a real formal complaint. They only said they think they've been harassed. They didn't say they were definitely being harassed. Um, And so people are busy. And so sometimes HR others will say, look, um, we've got to finish this deadline. We need to get this project finished and then we'll start the investigation. Or we have these two people working together and we've got to uh, manage the client and therefore we can't start an investigation that's going to mess everybody's relationship up. And so part of what happens is that you wait too long to get the investigation started, memories automatically start to fade. Documents may not be as readily available. Uh, Other evidence, people may forget about that's out there. And so that prompt and thorough, now part of what comes up, Jim, 
So people are like, well, what does that really mean? So prompt to me means at least you get the ball rolling. And I really caution people about like, we got to complain at one o'clock. We have to start the investigation at two o'clock. I'm like, slow down. Prompt means you've listened to the complainant or you're gathering information. You're maybe uh, telling people not to throw out documents or something. What are the logistics? Have you contacted counsel? Have you gathered your policies and other things that might be applicable? Confidentiality issues. We just had a huge ruling uh, over the winter break in the last couple of weeks from the NLRB that now we can ask for confidentiality. So it, there are all these things to think about. So when we say prompt and thorough, it means get the ball rolling. Um, and so I think sometimes people just wait too dang long to start the investigation, at least get the ball rolling. It sounds like you really have to balance between, you know, being prompt, but also being prepared. Yes. And let me tell you, I, because I do expert witness work in this area, I mean, I I will rarely ding a company for a delay if if I can see that they've been doing stuff. If it is the delay of, you know, it was a bad time of year, it was before the holidays. Now, it could be you can't find people. You can't find people to sign the agreements to bring in an investigator. I, I understand those things. But if it's just delay because you know, you don't have time, that's not going to end well. So how is preparation another one of these, one of these common mistakes, not being prepared enough? Yes. And it really goes along with the first mistake. And so part of what I see in the, you know, the trainings I do and the expert witness work is I see investigators that, you know, I've been an investigator for over 20 years. I will still put together an outline and that isn't that I can't figure out what next question to do. I mean, I'm trained as a lawyer, so I've taken depositions, but it is to keep me on track. What we wanna do is be respectful to our witnesses. And if we're rambling and unorganized, that doesn't help anyone. They think we're uh, you know, ill-prepared and maybe not very professional. So part of being prepared is taking a step back and saying, are there legal issues? Do we need to talk to counsel? Are there things we need to think about? What if it's, let's say, in a hospital environment? Do they have a, a health and safety issue that maybe they need to alert other people within their company, their organization, uh, to handle certain matters? Um, is there retaliation potential or has that already gone on? Again, consulting counsel, as I said, as I also noted, maybe there's PR issues. Maybe this is a high profile investigation that needs to take place. Maybe you've heard from Ronan Farrow, right? And everybody's blood pressure is uh, uh, out of uh, out of this universe. Um, are there checklists you need to think about? Are you gathering the documents? Are you thinking about what you need to do? So preparation is, is, really, is really key. Look, part of what I recommend too is think about where you're going to hold the interviews. And I have HR say to me, Oh, well, I always do to my office. And I said, okay, so your office is both the happy place. Wow, I'm going to HR because I'm getting my year-end bonus. And it's also the, uh-oh, I have, you know, a problem with my manager or a coworker. So, you know, you need to think about those kind of logistics. Have the meetings in a conference room where there's no windows. Do it on a different floor. All that comes in to being prepared. And it's it's really important as you think about who the witnesses might be and also checking your bias. 
And, and Jim, I think that's a really important thing to talk about is that, that bias that can happen when we don't take the time to prepare and think about how our actions may be perceived. Let me give you one quick example, which is people will often say to me, you know, one of the things I do is I automatically look through the complainant's personnel file. And I'm like, really? And I'm so curious. Why do you do that? Well, you know, I just want to see if anything's been going on. I want to see, you know, how their performance reviews were, et cetera. And I said, why, why do you do that before you have all the facts? And, you know, it makes it seem to me that you might be looking for something. And it's like, no, 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 I'm not. I'm just trying to get a picture. And I'm like, you have to let the witness provide the picture for you. And it doesn't mean in preparation that you scour all the files. Why do you need to know about past issues if it may not be relevant? So that issue of bias is something that I encourage people during the prep stage. Pay attention to it at every step along the way. That's a, you know, it's always a challenge getting people to uh, overcome their biases. It's, it sounds like a good idea. You know, we, we recommend people when they're doing interviews not to look up personal details about candidates for hiring purposes so that they don't mm-hmm. get preconceived notions. Um, I agree. Yes, exactly. We, we w- I've watched a ton of law and order and a lot of (laughs) (laughs) legal procedures. And I think that there's been distilled sort of into common knowledge that if something's hearsay, it's not admissible in court and therefore it's meaningless. Um, What's your take on that? I love this topic and your question. And Uh, I've actually written an article, and if people want to write to me privately, I will send them an article entitled Three Reasons Why Investigators Should Not Discount Hearsay. And so your intro was fabulous because that's what people think. It's like, oh, I've watched enough law shows to know about hearsay. Well, hearsay is really only used for lawyers. Look, we learn it for the bar exam. It's an out-of-court statement offered to prove the truth of the matter asserted. And then people look at us, they're like, what? What? (laughs) And it's funny. So it simply means like it's something that's said out of court and you are not able to test the reliability. And under the law, there are literally and exactly 27 exceptions to the hearsay rule. La-di-da, that's the law. But for (laughs) investigators... It is such a huge, and I am really going to use this word, mistake, error, big, poor judgment call to not follow hearsay. So here's the thing. By not using hearsay, you're missing what could lead you to. Notice I'm not saying that the hearsay testimony itself is reliable, but it may lead you to other reliable or relevant information. Relevancy is critical. What's relevant? If you tell me that you went to um, a park for your company picnic and things happened there, is it relevant to me what happened the day before in the coffee room, you know, at your workplace? Maybe, maybe not. I have to talk to you. I have to find out what it is and then I'll, I'll pursue it further. So we follow what those facts are. Hearsay can be very reliable. Here's part of what the the big mistake is, Jim, is people will say, well, Jim wasn't there. Jim wasn't at the park. He didn't see what happened. 
Mm. No, but maybe maybe you talked to Betty five minutes after the incident in the park. Maybe you were sitting in your car and you hadn't walked actually into the park yet. So maybe you saw Betty's demeanor. You might be able to tell me her her you know frame of mind. Now let's just say she came to you and was like, "Oh, brother, you wouldn't believe what Joe did." And you're thinking, oh, yeah, she always complains about Joe. It didn't seem different to you. Or maybe it was very different. That can be very important information to an investigator. Okay, she claimed it was traumatic. But yet when Jim saw her five minutes later, her demeanor seemed very similar to other days. Does that mean it wasn't traumatic? No, that's not what I'm saying. But I'm able to help assess credibility by talking to you, even though you weren't there so people get thrown off this path. And the other thing is, I, if there is such a thing as investigator malpractice, I would, I would put it, uh, um, not following you know, relevant evidence as a big, as a big you know, hash mark against the investigator. And mm-hmm. the reality is hearsay can lead you to relevant evidence. And it is up to us as the investigator to then make credibility determinations. So um, I think it's, it's just such a mistake to say like, well, but no, they weren't in the room. No, but they can give you good information that may lead you to something else. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, I wasn't aware of all the exceptions in legal cases. That alone is is very interesting to me. Um, there's always these problems when it comes to communication in general, but certainly communication when it comes to um, legal matters or investigative matters. You know, and there's this other concept that's kind of related that's the he said, she said thing. Like we can't get to the bottom of it. It's just your word against mine. Uh, is that something you come up against? Um, only about 100 million times, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, look, and I, I'm not here to get political, but after, after, look, I've been training investigators for 20 years. But after watching the Kavanaugh hearing, and again, not about the political part, it dawned on me right? We have a a very high profile, he said, she said, or she said, he said situation. Um, And, you know, when you have no witnesses around, it's very tough as an investigator. And, you know, part of what happens is we have to assess credibility. And it dawned on me after those hearings, that as trainers, we're not doing enough to help people understand how to assess credibility when there are no witnesses around. And so I spent 2019 speaking around the country on how to assess credibility. And if your um, listeners write to me, I will send them my presentation that I created. And it goes through and will, and I'll give a couple of tips now, but it talks about ways to think about credibility. Some of it's gonna be similar to regular credibility determinations, but others are more nuanced. And so, Part of what we have to do when we're, you know, let's just say, right, two people behind a closed door, no one's there. But similar to that hearsay example I use, it could be someone who sees someone right afterwards. So we have to look beyond. So there are different ways to assess credibility. One is the factors we use. One is called plausibility. Is it inherently plausible what the person's telling us? Meaning just on a a basic level, does it... So the, is the way the facts were described, does it make sense? Sometimes in our head, we're like, whoa, holy guacamole, like, where did that come from? And then we have to stop and say, okay, like, is it plausible? What other facts do I need? Who else could I talk to to help me determine whether it's plausible or not? 
Now, obviously, the gold standard is corroboration, right? Someone else corroborates. But what people think is it always has to be a very exact corroboration. Jim said Allison wore a blue sweater. So then I have to talk to Jill, who said, yes, it was a blue sweater. Now, what if she said it was teal? Okay, to some people, maybe that's how they describe a different color blue. It could be close enough. Like, it, it, does everything have to be exact? And so we have something also called indirect corroboration. So someone may not exactly give something, or they weren't ex there in the moment, but they can give us enough information that has elements of corroboration there. Uh, we look at motive. We look at someone's past record. So we look at these things to help us figure out, is what someone's saying, does it make sense? And, and for your audience, it's just very important for them to remember, our standard is this. Is it more likely than not that the conduct occurred? 51%. You don't have to take it to 99. You know, that, that was, you know, that's criminal. But for us, it's 51%. And so when you don't have other witnesses, we have to look at people who can give us context to things. And look, that he said, she said, she said, she said, they said, they said, these are the hardest of all the types of credibility that we have to try to figure out. Let me give your audience just a couple of quick other tips. So for example, if I'm talking, I'm interviewing a complainant or any witness and they're like, I was very scared of Jim and everything was all of a sudden I start hearing little, maybe what could be exaggerations. Uh, you know, Jim, every time I've seen him, I've been scared. And I'm thinking, wow, you've been working with the person for 10 years like, every single time. Like that just, is that plausible that you could be afraid of someone every single time? So then you start asking the questions like, tell me about, you know, year five, what went on with you? Well, I can't really think of anything. So then that hits the credibility. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I'm quite familiar with that style of yeah. argument anyway. Um, <laughs> you yeah. always say blah, 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 or it's the yeah. idea of the absolute, right? Yes, and then when your wife says you never put the toilet seat down, right? <laughs> so we have all those absolute expressions. But as an investigator, those are things for credibility I look at. And if someone is more tempered and says, look, I, I have felt uncomfortable with Jim, for a long time. Can I remember the exact day it started? No, but I can tell you these three things have been a theme. Wow. Okay. So that helps me. Does that mean every witness has to be as articulate as that? No, that's not what I'm saying. But what I want your audience to know is that there are many ways that we can assess credibility. And when I see someone say, this is too hard. There's no other witnesses. We cannot make a finding. I am all over them as an expert witness because you can make findings. That is your job. Are there times where it's close to impossible? Sure. Very, very, very few. You should be able to look around and be able to assess credibility, and that will help you make that 51% determination. Not saying it's easy. Yeah, I can't even imagine having to do one of these investigations. Um, you know, you mentioned a, a situation where someone says a sweater is one color in an interview, and then the next person says it's a different color. In that case, they were similar colors, but you know, um, what happens when when someone says something different in a, in a different interview? Do you go back mm -hmm. and talk to the first person, or what's the situation there? Yeah, that you know, that's a really great question because you know it's it's so important to do that follow up and. 
you know, we might be like, a, if someone might in their head be like, aha, you know, which I recommend people don't ever do an aha, I caught you because it is, <laughs> that isn't what we do. That's what Columbo did on TV, right? That's what happens on all these shows. But our job isn't to do that. It's to be, it, you have to come at every investigation absolutely focused on procedural fairness, fundamental fairness. Not everyone's, there's always going to be somebody who's not happy with your finding. But you have to be fundamentally fair in the process and listening to people and following the facts. And doing the follow-up interview is critical. I'll give you an example. I was an expert witness in a very high-profile case here in the Bay Area in California. And the investigator talked about 19 witnesses, so like a very healthy group. And some people completely contradicted the complainant. They had... uh, contrary uh, information and evidence, and he never went back to the complainant. Now, as an expert, Mm. I just want to be clear, I am not an advocate, but never went back and said, look, you said on this day, these people were in the meeting, nobody corroborates your version of the facts. Is there anyone you can think of that I didn't talk to that you think I should? Or is there another day you might be thinking of a different meeting? My job isn't to help people make their case. I don't want anyone to be confused with that. But my job is to be fair and say, nobody corroborated that. And then sometimes the person's like, well, maybe I just didn't remember it. And then you get to assess their credibility on that, you know, that they weren't very credible. But you have to go back and do the follow-up. Sometimes you do a follow-up interview because you need to assess their credibility a little more. And I've had times where I'm like, oh, this is really close. And I call the witness back. I call the complainant back and say, look, I have a couple more questions. Or I want to go over something in my notes. And it allows me to have another bite at that credibility apple as well. So the failure to follow up, I think, is a huge mistake that happens quite often. They're like, nope, I'm done. I talked to everybody once. It's like, but if you had contrary evidence, now, do you have to go back for every little fact? Probably not. You know, what are you determining as the investigator is the critical piece that you're making your finding about? But but I have had times where I've gone back and it's been unbelievably helpful because someone may, a witness may say to me, did I tell you about X? And it's like, uh, no. So why don't you tell me about X right now? Or I, I remembered it, but I just didn't want to bother you. And I'm like, bother away. So sometimes people will refrain from calling the investigator because they don't want to look like, oh, she won't believe me because I changed my mind or I came up with new information. And you have to set that up in the in the interview in the beginning to say, look, you may not remember things, so please call me. And my first reaction isn't that you're making it up. It's that we have talked and we have refreshed your memory and it is very normal. That's a great answer. Um, Are there any other common mistakes? I think we have time for maybe one more that you run into all the time. Well, I would say, well, it's probably a tie for going back to write that objectivity part and retaliation. So let me quickly divide these up for you. So the lack of objectivity, I talked about in the beginning of our our chat today, which is, you know, the bias that can be there. If you are an HR professional who knows your workforce super well and have, you know, been involved in disciplinary conversations with an employee or other issues, maybe you're not the right person to do the investigation. And it can be very painful because people take it as an ego thing, like, oh, I should be able to do the investigation. It's like, 
get yourself out of it. It's all about the integrity of the investigation. And it doesn't mean you have bias. What it means is there could be the perception of bias or lack of objectivity. And I am very sensitive. I'll have uh, potential clients that say, we want to hire you to be an investigator and we want you to also be our trainer. And I'll say, um, I'm happy to do your training, but if you ask me then to do an investigation, I'm going to refer you to someone else because I don't want to make it look like I, I have somehow come up with a particular finding because I want to get more business from you. And we all, and I'm an outside investigator, but internal, the same thing. Do I know people too well? Have I gone to lunch many times with someone? So that lack of objectivity or the perception of bias is problematic. And then just not paying attention to what could be retaliatory. And, you know, retaliation claims are the number one most common claim filed in our country. So I'd be remiss to not have it on the list when, when people miss that. And, you know, you know, the investigation's done and you don't follow up with someone just to say, hey, the investigation's been over for a couple months. How is everything okay? And if they say, yeah, everything's great. Thank you so much. I'm so glad the investigation's over. You're good to go. If someone's like, well, you know, uh, I mean, it's fine. Don't be relieved. They're not, that doesn't sound convincing to me. So that last little bit of follow-up is really important. I'm an outside investigator. I don't do that, but I encourage the client follow up with folks a couple months later, just making sure there's no subtle retaliation or anything. It's very important. So you mean retaliation from the perspective of the employee, like them retaliating? Yes, Yes, that the employee might feel, or uh, well, let me be more specific, that the complainant or witnesses might feel that having, uh, because of the complaint that was made or because of providing testimony in the investigation, they are now treated differently somehow regarding what we call the terms and conditions of employment, right? Hiring, firing, promotion, inclusion into activities. So if something has changed, you know, you want to know right away. This has been very interesting. Two, th- two things have come clear to me throughout this conversation. One is that this is a very muddy business. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I don't know how anyone can determine anything. Um, but we do. We, yeah. But we do. That's the whole point. We are trained. We, you know, your audience has to stay up to date. If I can give a plug, I spent four years on the board of the Association of Workplace Investigators, uh, awi.org. You have to continue your training. I do other investigators do. It doesn't matter whether you're internal or external. Like that's how we develop those chops, Jim. That's how we get the skills because we keep up on it. More people are focused now on credibility than ever um, because it's even more important with the number of claims that are being filed in the Me Too world. The other thing uh, was that I think there needs to be a television show called Workplace Investigations. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at if you, my number one source of how, I don't know, how investigations go is from television and books and movies. And they always, there always comes this part where the main character is told they're too close. For example, we're talking about objectivity. You're too close to it. And then they go off and do it anyway, you know, do the investigation anyway. Um, they break the rules all the time, you know, and that's how a lot of people get their information about how things work. Uh, and it's obviously not, it doesn't translate. Yeah, I think it's, you know, look, you know, it's that 
that's how people want to think it's done. And, you know, that's why I think part of being an investigator is in the very beginning of the interview is to explain how it all works, explain the process so people mm. understand. But don't forget, at the end of the day, sometimes people don't actually like what the finding is, so they think they'll look for bias and they'll look for all the mistakes anyway. That's a good point. Well, thank you so much, Allison, for, for taking the time to, to talk with me today about this. My pleasure. Thanks so much, Jim. You're welcome. Um, listeners, we are always interested in suggestions you might have for what HR Works should cover next. Feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at HRWorksPodcast or to me directly at jdavis at blr.com. With any thoughts or concerns you have about the podcast in general, um, or if you just want to say hi, thanks for listening. This is Jim Davis with HR Works.